Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast. My name is Colby Atchison, and I'm joined today by Dr. Patrick Egan and Jason Barney. And today we will be exploring the topic of Christian maturity for Christian classical schools. How can we help our students grow in Christian maturity? What does that look like? We often talk about a portrait of a graduate in our schools or even home schools. Who do we want our students to become? What's the the picture here that we're going for? What's the vision that we're pursuing. And we often have a list of four to six characteristics of what our graduates might look like or who they become. Sometimes, but sometimes not, the phrase maturity shows up in these portraits. And so today we want to talk about what is Christian maturity? What does it look like from a biblical standpoint, from a psychological perspective? And how can we help students get on the path towards Christian maturity? How can we support them? A key influence on the three of us has been Bill St. Cyr, a founder and director at Ambleside Schools International. And he speaks in a very inspiring way about how we can help children as persons grow in maturity, how we can help them grow in personal responsibility of developing habits that will be the rails of the good life, about how we as teachers can form relational alliances with our students to help them grow towards Christian maturity and ultimately flourish as human beings. So today we're going to be diving into this topic. Patrick, could you get us started here? Perhaps we could begin by reflecting philosophically on maturity. What is it? And then we will move towards the pedagogical question. How do we help students grow in Christian maturity? So, Patrick, what what is maturity? I would begin a definition of maturity by thinking about being a grown-up, being comfortable and happy as a grown-up. And already with the back of the envelope definition like that, you can think of grown-ups who are not happy being grown-ups. It's uncomfortable. (laughs) You've got decisions to make, you've got taxes to pay, and all of those kinds of aspects of life. And so maybe a way to even qualify what we mean by being a grown-up is being comfortable in authority and under authority that all of us are under authority of some kind. Uh, We grow up with parents. We might be in a church where there's an authority structure there. We might be in a place of employment where we have bosses. Even if we are the CEO of a company, we have stakeholders, we have a board, we have customers that we are accountable to. There are laws of the land that we have to submit to. So when you think about authority as the world we live in, being comfortable 
in authority, so I will have authority over others, and being comfortable under authority so that I can be at peace in a hierarchy of some kind, that somebody else is somebody I'm accountable to in some way, is a good measure of what maturity is and how we can define it in such a way that we can actually provide feedback, sometimes to ourselves, like, ooh, in this relationship, I am not at peace. Is that because it's an inappropriate authority structure where I need to use my civil liberties to speak out about authority? You know, so that might be one option, but that notice that takes some maturity of discernment and all of that. Or do I need to come to a place where I am at peace under that authority because it's a good and right authority to have in my life? And we can bring this back to the classroom because we as teachers have a certain amount of authority that is vested in us. And we would call that deputed authority, that we are deputies of parental authority with the task of training and educating children. But that authority is a real and valid authority that a student would then be learning how to be at peace under that authority, to be trained by a rightful authority. And so that dynamic of authority is really a key component of maturity. So I want to put that out there, see what you guys think about this definition of maturity and and how it relates to authority. I think it's a really great point, Patrick, because in our culture in particular, I feel that the idea of of maturity and growing up and being an adult often is correlated with this idea of unfettered autonomy, that somehow um, you are under a natural sort of oppression as a child when you have to obey your elders and uh, do what the school tells you to do. But the real goal that you're getting to is an authority-less world where you can simply pursue your own way and whim whatever direction it it calls you and just to, you know bring out your full the full flowering of your own personhood and you know do whatever you want and i i think that that idea is just so pervasive and central to how we as moderns or postmoderns think that uh it's important to qualify that and say no actually maturity adulthood involves a whole host of relationships in which we have to engage in submission you can see this in uh, Christian teaching on um, being subject to the governing authorities and submission to one another within the church. It's so important to have that idea of maturity uh, in place. Otherwise, right, like we're going to just be conceiving it wrong. And now for a message from our sponsor. Rethink your why. As educators interested in renewing education for a new generation, Jason Barney's new book, Rethinking the Purpose of Education, helps you rethink learning objectives around moral, spiritual, and intellectual virtues. Get your copy of Rethinking the Purpose of Education by Jason Barney, available now through our website or at Amazon.com. Interestingly, the story Peter Pan might help us here, which is sort of the antithesis of what Patrick described about 
becoming a grown-up. In Peter Pan, you have this fictional island called Neverland, which is painted as this attractive place that we all long to get to of eternal childishness, where we never grow up where we never have somebody telling us what to do. We get to do whatever we want. And that's the vision of the good life painted in this story that has shaped the popular imagination, whether explicitly or implicitly. Whereas what we're talking about here is a vision for the good life and Christian maturity, where we are at peace living under authority. I think that's a really interesting distinction here. Now, what happens, though, if the authority is not, let's say, wise in the sort of maturity that it's holding its students to? Because I think that's a similar but related problem in culture today. You could have, say, a public school that has very clear lines of authority, and you know what will happen if you do X and what that meeting with the principal will look like and what are the boundaries for expulsion and so forth. But the the standards, even in that authoritative structure, are so low in terms of what they aspire for their students to become. And I'm picking on public schools, but it, it doesn't have to be public schools. It can be Christian schools as well, especially Christian schools that are heavily influenced by modern education or have just become so large that the adult to student ratio makes it near impossible to really come alongside students and cultivate a strong culture of Christian maturity. So, uh, Patrick, maybe you could interact with this soft objection, so to speak, that you can have authority without Christian maturity. I think there's a few ideas that come to my mind and and it has to do with independence. So part of what we're dealing with is that dichotomy of authority and independence. And a great authority would be one that promotes the independence of the people under authority, right? So that they can pursue independent courses of action that would promote the most happiness for every individual, right? The the most eudaimonia and and we can think of tyranny you know so for instance in um in the peter pan analogy you brought up captain hook is an impotent tyrant and so adulthood is cast as this impotent tyranny that children are rebelling against and i think about how that's that is something that our society almost has its as its fundamental framework is don't trust anybody over 40 <laughs> is is that framework um and here i think about god and how if we take god as the ultimate authority his authority isn't meted out to us to make us automatons we're not robots under his care under his authority he really does promote the individuality of us all so that there's the flourishing of our personhood when we are truly under authority that our greatest satisfaction comes from being in a right relationship with him under that authority so 
maybe a nuance to our definition of being at peace under authority is to become masterfully independent so that I, I know the right course of action to be an independent individual at peace under authority, yes, but also able to pursue a course of action in my life that would promote the most happiness, the most eudaimonia, the most good and well-being in the world for myself and the world around me. I think that's exactly right. And I think this is the connection to Charlotte Mason's philosophy. To use the analogy of the CEO, Patrick, the first thing a child must learn to get on the path of maturity is that she is her own life CEO. That's not to say she is autonomous. It is actually to say that she is the CEO of her own life that reports to God or the deputed authorities, as you mentioned, parents, teachers, etc. But part of the richness of the Charlotte Mason philosophy is that it actually inspires the child as a person to view her own self as a land that she is to rule. And I think about the analogy that Charlotte Mason talks about. Help me here. What's the what's the phrase she uses? I'm thinking of the volume of education. Uh, one of her volumes, she talks about Mansoul. Are you Mansoul. thinking of that kind yeah, of book, yeah. ourselves? Um, yeah. where she talks about the kingdom of Mansoul and has a sort of allegory yes. uh, built out for what what it is for me to be a human being and all the different parts of myself that I I need to rule, like you're saying. Yeah, that's it right there. The kingdom of Mansoul. And in our in the in the art in the volume ourselves, she she explains through this allegory a specific vision for a child and how she is to rule her own self's kingdom. Again, not in this egocentric, narcissistic, autonomous sense, but actually in the sense that we as kings and queens of our own lives report to authority here, the authority of God and then the deputed authorities. And that's really empowering because when you as a person are told you are responsible to make this happen and you will be held accountable accordingly, that's really inspiring, especially if supportive. While we're talking about all of this aspects of Charlotte Mason and then eudaimonia as the vision of maturity is really developed, this makes me think of the importance of the biblical word for mature that's often translated as mature. It can sometimes be translated as perfect, but it's teleos in the Greek New Testament. And that makes me think of the Aristotelian vision of, of our, an end that toward which all things uh, tend or, or ought to go, that, that we all have a function, we have a final end. And so, um, you know, we often talk in classical education circles about how we as human beings are teleological. We're, we're made for a certain purpose. And, and in a way, that purpose is the purpose that education is meant to, to develop us towards, right? It, it's supposed to point us on to our purpose as human beings. And so uh, that involves or uh, has as part of its outcome, you might say, that eudaimonia, that human flourishing, that full 
uh, actualization of the self in as a, a steward of God's good creation to others. So this kingdom of man's soul kind of connects in with the Aristotelian vision of happiness uh, properly conceived from a Christian perspective as being our ultimate goal that education is supposed to get us toward. And so that's like, that's the maturity. That's the teleos. What it, what it means to be fulfilled as an individual is living in, in love and virtue and service to God and neighbor. And that that's the, the goal we're headed towards. That's, that's what it means to be a, a full person, a, a, a finished per, a, a person that's meeting its own purpose. The, the purpose for which God created us, I think is maybe I don't know, a way of philosophically kind of clarifying what we're getting at with this word maturity. That self-direction piece is so important. Charlotte Mason in her book, The Formation of Character, actually talks about this as well. And we could imagine how the environment, we would want to place a student in an environment where the environmental factors kind of press into the the pores the cells of that child a sense of responsibility or you know good character or something like that but we can't expect that only we would almost be hoping for the ideal connection of their innate personality traits matching or or maybe like their genetic disposition, the chromosomes meet with environment in such a way that they just automatically produce a person of good character. But she she basically says that that's a dream. That's going to happen in one in a thousand lives if we're lucky, right? Instead, what if we put in the hands of the child themselves? She actually says what put into the hands of the girl the means of doing for herself what only exceptional circumstances will do for her. Teach her the principles and methods of self-culture, seeing that you cannot undertake to provide for her the culture of circumstances. So what does that mean? We're actually trying to equip what we might call self-authority into students so that what they're guided by is an internal sense of what is right and wrong. And, and here I think we get to the ought versus want that I think, Jason, you've already brought up to a certain extent that we're often guided by what we want. And, and we've got this whole dopaminergic system that is guiding us towards just getting hit after hit of what it is I want. But what if I'm guided by knowing what I ought to do before I do what I want to do? So I want to play a video game, but I know I ought to bring in the garbage first. And wouldn't a mature person be guided by knowing what I ought to do and doing what I ought to do before doing what I want to do and potentially seeing how ought and want go together? That I actually, when I'm properly orienting those things, that then we can really shine as mature individuals. And now for a message from our sponsor. Sign up for the Educational Renaissance newsletter 
Stay connected to the EdRen community to deepen your understanding of education and hone your craft as a teacher. The Educational Renaissance newsletter comes out every Saturday morning, sharing each new blog post. Subscribers also get advance notice on special offers. We promise not to fill up your email with endless advertisements. Become part of the Educational Renaissance community. Subscribe today at educationalrenaissance.com. Well, what we're getting at here is really just the classical vision of what it means to be a human being. I think of Plato here in the tripartite soul. You have the reason, the the chest, and the belly. And that, you know, in the Republic, you know, he magnifies the human person to a city and basically paints a picture in which the city is ruled by reason through the the auxiliary or the the chest the soldiers but the point is to to rule the belly here these these instincts of appetite that otherwise would enslave a person and so you know in our culture today the vision of the good life that's promoted is one of ultimate pleasure where you can go out and seek whatever pleasure you want whether it is social or drink or even sexual, but uh, a a libertine vision, do whatever you want, get as much pleasure as you want. And what Plato would actually say is, no, actually, the person who's pursuing those appetites unrestricted is actually the most enslaved person. And that, to quote my, my friend Patrick on this podcast here, who might be quoting someone else, discipline leads to freedom right it's actually through self-mastery that we become the most free as people and so to to do this for students to help them own this as young children to own their own habits own their own actions to to choose what they ought over what they want i mean this is putting students on the path to the good life and i think this is one reason why we have become so enthralled by this Charlotte Mason philosophy and, and even some of the ideas that Bill St. Cyr has taught us many years ago. The individual I get this from is Jocko Willink. Discipline uh, leads to, to freedom or discipline is freedom, that it is the disciplined individual who is truly free. And just to put a plug in for the work that Jocko Willink does, he actually has a series of books and podcasts called the Warrior Kid Podcast, where he he's actually taking questions from children and applying principles that enable children, particularly grade school children, to learn some basic principles of what it looks like to have a disciplined life so that they can experience freedom in their lives. I don't know that Jocko is classical or Christian, but I have found him to be a really helpful voice in in raising a young man. Definitely. Well, that's a good transition now to, I think, the how. How do we help children grow in Christian maturity? I think of habit training. It'd be great to touch on that a little bit. Some of the key habits that Charlotte Mason outlines or even virtues that we see in scripture that we would desire our students to embody. Uh, there might also be principles from different authors such as Jocko Willick that, that have touched on just some key traits that we want students to buy into from a young age and begin to, 
to practice. I think about personal responsibility, uh, thorough execution, and these kinds of things. So yeah, let's move to the the how here. How do we help students in our classrooms grow in Christian maturity? There was a time when the mature individual might have been referred to as a, a man or woman of principle. And that makes me think of the importance of principles or rules for life being stored in a child's, a youth's, an adult's heart so that they have uh, something to guide them. I've been thinking about this a fair amount in terms of uh, prudence as an intellectual virtue that guides all the moral virtues uh, in my series, Councils of the Wise. And I think this this idea of, of giving students principles for character, for conduct, for how to live life, for what really matters and um, how to value things is so important. And um, it strikes me that the book of Proverbs is incredibly underutilized, even in classical Christian education, when its very purpose is this, uh, to give good principles and, um, you know, those those words of the wise uh, that are like goads firmly fixed in order to make men and women of principle. And uh, when you have men and women of principle, again, they are mature. That's a that's a great way of referring to it. I think they're going to be the most happy. They're going to be disciplined. Principles alongside practice is something I've been seeing recently in Comenius is in terms of uh, his method of how to develop morals in students. Um, ultimately, with the the idea of maturity as the goal that we want them to potentially know all these wise sayings about uh, what life is truly valuable. And so using the Proverbs, but using Proverbs in general or wise sayings in general as part of our education is something to know, as well as um, maybe things like catechisms that are focused on moral formation and, and how to deal with different types of temptations or problems or situations for individuals. It strikes me that we could do a better job of going right to the heart of the matter and giving students the um, the tools that they need and even having them memorize it, right? Being ready with an answer from that catechism, using some of these great sayings. That's something that John Amos Comenius, the great Reformation era um, educator, recommends explicitly would be incredibly helpful for developing mature children. And now for a message from our sponsor. Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices. Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. I think sometimes we make the error of 
not talking about these principles enough, Jason, uh, out of a worry of getting into lecture mode with our children or students. And so we refrain from giving them the lecture on why making one's bed every day is actually going to be profitable for them. Alternatively, we, yeah, over lecture on this stuff and then drive the child or the student to a place of frustration where we haven't captured their heart. So it does seem like it takes skill and tact to be able to sow the idea, sow the principle in a way that's, I would suggest, brief, inspiring, and attractive, and then move to the practice and encourage. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, would be the very brief 30-second formula for how you help a child begin to develop uh, one habit, say, in this broader quest of maturity. This really does get us to the heart of what habit training is. There's been a lot of recent discussion around habits. Uh, you've got books like Atomic Habits that really get at the mechanisms of habits. But I think what Jason has brought up about rules and principles immediately takes me to somebody like a Jordan Peterson who talks about these rules for life. For instance, he has this rule, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Because oftentimes our educational outcomes are, can we create activists to change the world? But what if instead we were raising our, our children to have that sense of what Colby just said, have I made my bed today? Did I wake up when my alarm told me to wake up? Have I cleaned my room? If I can do those things, then I'm actually becoming the kind of person that could look at the chaos in the world and potentially have cultivated some skills to address those as opposed to just taking pot shots against it. So the kind of person that will actually be able to come up with constructive avenues to solve the world's problems are the ones who've actually solved problems in their own room or in their own school locker. And so these habits, while seemingly micro in some way, uh, make your bed, clean your cubby, organize your books, are actually fundamental to living a, a good and productive life. And like you said, you don't have to lecture about it. You're just setting them on a pathway towards their more mature self. I think that winds up being a beautiful thing, a gift that we're giving to that child to be self-directed, growing in, in masterful independence, being at peace under authority, doing what they ought to do as a responsibility taker. Consequences are also important in this uh, connection and Charlotte Mason talks about natural consequences, by which she means something that develops naturally from what the, <laughs> the poor choice was that a student engaged in or the, the negative quality habit. And the purpose of consequences is really to show a student and mimic in afterlife what they would experience in the world in general if they continued in that way. And, and, and that's important because when students are under our care, when they are growing, when children are under the care of their parents, they're to a certain extent sheltered naturally from the effects that 
the type of behavior that they're engaging in might have in adult life. And so we have to actually take action as parents and educators when students uh, behave in unproductive and unhelpful ways to show them and give them a little picture of when you act this way, this is what the world will do to you. Um, and and that's, that's very helpful and it's kind and it's going to be necessary for students to develop in maturity. And I, I hope I don't have to argue for that. I can just reference a book like Proverbs for the importance of that type of training, that type of use of consequences in order to help students grow toward maturity. But that's something that we should always keep in mind, again, because the principles and the lecture might not do it. And it might be that a little bit of the life of hard knocks or tough love is really important and crucial. Uh, Actions speak louder than words sometimes to get through to that hard-hearted student who's um, engaging in a particular pattern of action that is not going to lead to good things for them and, and will not let them be mature in later life. Really glad you touched on that, Jason, because natural consequences are a key aspect of life in general. And we learn as grown-ups that there are natural consequences for our actions. And the sooner that we can help children see and experience and make connections to those natural consequences, uh, the easier it will be for them to take some of these steps towards Christian maturity. Of course, all within an environment of love and support and grace and nurture. That's really important to emphasize. But just a closing thought on my mind before I wrap us up here is, is finally just the power of story in shaping moral imagination on the topic of Christian maturity. So memorizing some of these proverbs that Jason talked about, uh, memorizing certain catechisms of, of implanting perennial truths in the minds of students is important. And then you can embody these truths through telling students great stories, through having them read great books. If you haven't yet already, I encourage you to check out our podcast episode on great books, because it can really help a child buy into these important truths about the good life and maturity through something illustrated very concretely in story. I think about Aesop's fables and just how in such a clear and insightful way, these short parables can show so clearly for students, cut through the muck of confusion in the modern world and just show that if you do this, this is the result. And that is a really helpful just teaching way to help students grow. Well, thank you for listening to this podcast today on Christian maturity. We hope it was helpful for you as educators, whether at school or in the home. Maybe you are a parent listening today and you're just looking to pick up some tips on how you can help become a better parent. Well, this topic of Christian maturity definitely has implications for parenting as well. Well, if you're looking for more resources about this topic or just how to grow in general as an educator, we encourage you to check out our website, www.educationalrenaissance.com. There you can find many different downloadable resources. You can download webinars that are 
on the site there. You can also subscribe to our weekly blog and newsletter where each week we provide rich content for our listeners and subscribers. Thank you again for listening today. If you have a minute, please leave us a five-star review so that more people can find our podcast. And please leave a comment as well and just share something that you learned today. Have a good afternoon. 